Hello and welcome to Capital Stewart's 2024 Economic and Investment Outlook. I usually start these things by talking about long-term returns, and we're definitely going to do that. But I wanted to step back and talk about the last couple of years before we get to our usual long-term return charts uh, and really tell the story of what the economy and markets have been going through starting in 2021 and 2022, and then this year, 2023. And I think that will help us build the case for where we see uh, things going in 2024, which is no recession, but slow growth. And as always in this outlook, we'll, we'll talk about uh, the economy, where we see the outlook for inflation, overall economic growth. And then we'll talk about specific investment asset classes, stocks and bonds, building portfolios. And then at the end, give you some really tactical things that you can do, things you should consider um, as an investor as we head into the new year. Hello, and welcome to the Capital Stewards Podcast. Are you a professional who wants straightforward, trustworthy financial strategies that you can act on? Are you entering your highest income earning years and discovering that your personal finances are becoming too complex? We get it. You're a highly confident professional, but you don't have time to go deep on your personal finances the way you do with your day job. Hi, I'm Brian, and helping professionals make smart financial decisions is my passion. I run a financial advisory practice called the Capital Stewards and work with professionals like you who are trying to cut through the noise every day. It's time to stop Googling every question you have about money and dive into some real professional guidance. So let's get moving. So with that, let's look at 2021. Um, if we start in January 2021, right after COVID, you can see on this chart that retail sales spiked. Um, and spending on services also spiked. Those are the blue and the yellow lines. Incomes didn't actually increase that much, but all that stimulus that came flooding into the system uh, to prevent what was supposed to be the world's worst recession uh, was spent on goods and eventually on services as we reopened the economy. Uh, you can see in this chart, inflation is starting to rise faster than incomes. I um, mean, most of us felt that every single month. So that was 2021. Then if you move into 2022, you can see services spending continue to rise along with inflation. Spending on goods through retail sales started to flatten out in the second half of the year. Inflation, as measured by CPI, produced another banner year in 2022, and real incomes grew, but they didn't keep up with inflation. Again, I think you felt that probably in your pocketbook. Then we get to this year. In 2023, things started to come back to reality. Uh, the year isn't quite finished, but it appears that earnings are going to outpace inflation for the first time, and good spending will grow largely in line with inflation and earnings. Uh, spending on services continues to outpace everything else. Services, remember, things like um, going to a Taylor Swift concert or travel, hotels, those kinds of things, as opposed to something that you might pick up at the mall, right, that's a more physical good. Some of that may be sort of some revenge travel that happened in the third quarter over the summer, but I suspect it's more likely just to continuation of the rotation of the U.S. towards travel, personal services, concerts, all those types of service spending items and away from, from physical goods. So I don't think that sort of the, um, the change between services and goods is, is going to change anytime soon. What's notable over that whole period, 2021 and 2023, is that while everyone feels the pain of higher prices at the store, earnings have largely kept up with higher inflation. I don't think everybody thinks that, right? You just feel like going to the store, stuff's more expensive. But the reality is earnings on average have kept up with higher inflation. Average hourly earnings were up 20% in line with total inflation over that period. 
Now, that doesn't represent real wage growth. Ideally, earnings would actually outpace inflation modestly. But the idea that consumers are suffering under high inflation simply isn't true. Now, there's more bifurcation, certainly. Higher income workers, especially tech workers, have actually lost ground over this time period, while lower income service sector workers that have been really in demand, they've seen above average pay increases. One thing to keep in mind is uh, if your business, if you're a business owner, you haven't increased prices by at least 20% since 2020, you're not keeping up. So 20% since 2020, if your prices aren't up that much, you're not keeping up. And your customers are likely willing and able to pay. They may be grumbly about it, um, but they are willing and able to pay. If you're employed, if you work for somebody else, I um, mean, your pay hasn't gone up by 20% or more since 2020, you're also losing ground. Um, and your employer is also likely willing to pay. We'll talk about the jobs market more in a minute, but it's still pretty strong. Um, replacing you on the open market would probably cost 20% more than it did in 2020. So just kind of use that as a framework in your head. Uh, your own earnings, your business prices, things like that should have gone up 20% over the last couple of years uh, since 2020. So go back and look at those numbers. When you put it all together, we've kind of stepped out here and, and looked at 2010 through 2020. Uh, on the left side of the gray highlight for the COVID recession, you can see sort of what a more normal period of time looks like. And on this chart, I added personal savings uh, to help make the point. That's the line that's in pink. Normal prior to the COVID recession and periods before that, right? We can go back further in history. There's nothing magical about um, what happened in the 2010s in these relationships. Earnings, spending, savings, and inflation, they grew modestly together. The massive post-COVID stimulus initially boosted spending and savings and inflation, and we've come sort of down now in 2023 from that bender that the economy was on for a couple of years. So we talked about in the title, um, you know, we're coming down from the sugar high, uh, but slowing down from overheating and heading towards an imminent recession are two different things. And I think that's what economists and forecasters and investors are really struggling with is that we see things slowing down and we expect that there's some massive recession right around the corner. And yet it keeps being another two months out, another two quarters out further and further. We keep kicking that can down the road. Um, and I think we've got to step back and look at things more from a long-term perspective. And I think when you do that, you see that we're coming down from the sugar high. We're not necessarily moving into a period of of weakness. So I wanted to start with this picture. We're going to look more at our longer term returns here in just a second, um, because I think we feel that decline, right? That's how we feel. And, and that makes us want to make investment decisions based on that. And so we've got to step back. We've got to look at the data and see where we've been and where we're really going so we can have a sense of what's actually happening in the economy. So now let's let's look at our, our sort of no, more standard longer term uh, return slides. And for those of you that have seen these before, we're long term investors. That's why we always start by looking at long term returns. We don't want to get caught up in short term thinking that can cloud our judgment. Uh, the S&P 500 on average since 1997 is earning just over 8% every single year. Um, I think that during downturns, it's especially important to look back at prior peak to trough declines. Um, for example, if you had invested in stocks right before COVID um, or right before the financial crisis um, or even at the height of the tech bubble, you're still a really happy investor today. Um, so we'll talk about where markets and the economy stand, but our views and your view should never preclude you from buying and holding the right long-term investment portfolio in order to achieve your goals. If we zoom in just slightly over the last decade, you still likely experienced significant stock market returns. Uh, even after the 2022 downturn, uh, stock markets are well above their pre-COVID peaks. Over the last decade, stocks have performed as the best asset class, followed by real estate. Bonds have slightly underperformed inflation for the first time in several decades as rates have risen materially uh, in 2022 and 2023. 
Uh, so if you're a frequent viewer or listener, you probably wonder why I go over these charts every single time. Um, you probably wonder if I know that I keep repeating myself. I do know it's intentional um, because having a long-term perspective is the most important investment and economic insight that we can offer. It's much more important than any view that we have over what's going to happen over the next year or two. Uh, so if you're not comfortable with your current plan and you don't have something that you can stick with over the long term, um, then you should seek out professional guidance. Our team would be happy to discuss your situation with you in more depth. Uh, we'll put a link in the show notes to make it easy to get in touch with us so that you can you can get to a place where you say, hey, I have a plan that I feel comfortable with sticking to uh, over the long term, regardless of what happens in the economy over the next six or eight months. So now that we have a little backdrop on where we set vis-a-vis history, long term, short term, and over the last you know, two or three years. Uh, let's dive into the current state of the economy. So the major question that's being debated is whether or not we're going to have a recession next year. Uh, it's very difficult, if not impossible, to have a recession without a major drop-off in consumer spending. Uh, that's because personal spending is nearly 80% of the economy. Uh, you can see on the chart when we look at contributions to GDP, uh, we looked here just over the last couple of decades, but you can take this back. The relationship still holds you see the significant contributions that consumer spending makes. Uh, business investment is also really important. Um, and then government spending um, and export activity make up the balance. But if even if everything else stands still, you would need to see a drop off in consumer spending in order to have a recession. So we start thinking about 2024 by looking at the health of the consumer and their propensity to keep spending. And that starts with having a job. Current non-farm payrolls are, are at 199,000 a month. The three month average uh, moving average is 200,000. From 2010 to 2019, job gains averaged about 186,000 a month. So our current situation is still really strong. We're creating a lot of jobs every single month uh, in the economy, even though we've come down from that sort of post-COVID sugar high. Those employment numbers, they're consistent with a really strong economy that we were experiencing right before COVID. Uh, and just because the numbers are down a little bit this year doesn't mean that's bad news. Like I said, we're still running pretty close um, to that pre-COVID average. I think you could actually see the payroll number dip into the mid-150s next year, 150,000, maybe even a little less. And that would still be healthy for the economy because we've got, we've got a lot of demand for workers. So despite the growth that we're seeing in jobs, the unemployment rate is still going higher. And I think you see that in the news and, and that sort of gets reported and it instantly casts this sort of really negative shadow or what's happening. Um, and I think it's important to look at the sort of picture again in totality and realize that there are 2.6 million more people employed in the U.S. this October than there were last October. Uh, that's because the economy has been creating, like we talked about, 200,000 jobs every month. The unemployment rate's moving higher mostly because just over 3 million workers have joined the labor force in the past year. And so the job market hasn't been able to keep up with the surge of people coming back into the labor force. So despite all the new workers and the higher rate, the, un the unemployment rate, though, still re remains historically low when we look at it over long periods of time. Even if we see the change in the unemployment rate flatten out or even rise a percentage point, um, we still have a historically strong jobs market. If you look at the chart, you can see where we stand vis-a-vis -vis history, right? In recessions, even more moderate ones uh, in the 1990s and the 2000s, uh, we saw unemployment rates that were well over 5 or 6%. We're currently not even at 4%, and we're having a debate over whether or not that's bad. Um, there's been a lot in the press lately about the SOM rule, which suggested a rise of unemployment of more than a half of 1% from a previous 12-month low uh, indicates that we're in a recession. However, um, if you believe that we're coming out of the sugar high economy, which we do, it would be natural for unemployment to go up a little bit and normalize. Um, in fact, Claudia Som, who created the SOM rule, gave an interview on Bloomberg earlier this fall, 
And she suggested that her rule may not apply to the, to this economy precisely um, because we're normalizing out of a post-COVID recession. We're not sort of coming off just a normal period of strong economic growth. And so if the rule creator isn't buying her statistics, then I'm not buying her statistics either for this moment in history. So the bottom line is unemployment is low. Even if it moves a little bit higher from here, that's not a terrible thing. Um, the strong job market, further evidenced by the gap that still remains between the number of open jobs and the available unemployed workforce. We've seen this probably every month, every chart you've seen from me over the last really 24 months over the last two years has had this in it. Over the last quarter, that gap shrank from 4 million down to 3 million. So we've, we're have we making progress on having sort of a smaller gap between the available workers and the number of open jobs. And that gap is mostly closing because companies are hiring less. There are workers coming in the workforce. But the majority of that uh, that decrease over the last quarter was because the number of job postings simply went down. You can see the number of job postings is falling much faster than the number of available workers is is rising. If that if that trend continues, just like it has been, we've got at least four more quarters before we have a truly balanced workforce. Uh, you could probably make the case that the rate of closure is actually going to slow down because the remaining jobs probably require people to reskill, retrain, move somewhere else, learn something new. So that's going to take more time to adjust. So I don't expect that the rate of change here will be constant over the next year. So we've got some time before we really actually have a situation where we have more unemployed folks uh, than we have places that would like to hire them. The other way to look at employment is to look at layoffs. And I think this is particularly important because um, in order for us to really have a higher unemployment rate that's going to be problematic, we need to see companies actually let go of people, not just sort of get rid of open, cancel open job recs and things like that. Layoffs in the U.S. Um, averaged about 1.7 million every month pre-COVID. Um, and, and that's the other thing I think that's that's really important. As you see news stories every day of a company laid off 5,000 people or 2,000 people here, 2,000 people there. The reality is the U.S. economy is always sort of turning and, and creating new jobs and, and moving workers around. And so, you know, we see layoffs all the time, right? So the average layoff number pre-COVID, 1.7 million. Currently, we're running about 1.6 million in layoffs every single month. So layoffs are below the long-term average. Um, for some perspective, during 2001, during the tech, the, the recession, the fall of the, the tech bust, Monthly layoffs ticked above 2 million for several months. In 2009, we saw a more sustained period of time with layoffs that were over 2.5 million. As layoffs have been trending up over the past few years. That makes sense. We've been coming down off the sugar high. Um, but they're coming from below average levels, closer to normalized levels. So the fact that they're moving up isn't necessarily a bad thing. Um, we need to see the numbers rise significantly from here in order to have real labor market weakness. Uh, and keep in mind, the tech sector has already been through fairly significant sort of labor force contraction already. There are others like that that have been through contractions. Um, so it's it's probably there's not as much sort of left uh, to squeeze for companies um, when they think about layoffs as we as we go forward. As you might expect in a strong jobs market, real consumer incomes are increasing. They're not falling. Inflation is moving lower. That's a big part of that. And the workers are starting to get larger inflation inflation adjustments in their pay. So you can see that personal incomes have moved back over the long term average. Average hourly earnings for workers has moved back over the long-term average as well. So the consumer is in a good place. They have confidence in their jobs. The market for jobs is pretty strong. And even though you can see in this chart where incomes fell due to higher inflation in, in 2021 and 2022, we've mostly recovered from that. Um, so their wages are tracking with inflation now. So they're not in a terrible spot. 
The other story this year that has been talked about a lot is the increase in consumer debt. Consumers are increasingly using credit cards to fund purchases. Uh, That's absolutely true that consumers are relying on more debt this year uh, than they did in 2021 and 2022. Uh, But the longer term data suggests that while increases year over year are significant, it's again, it's just a normalization back to pre-COVID, you know, non-sugar high debt levels. Uh, you can see in the chart, uh, total household debt service is about 9.8% of disposable income. That actually remains below the average of 11%. I think some of that has to do with mortgage rates being low for so long that probably are, are going to be down, and that's okay. Um, but the same thing is true if you look at only consumer debt at the, at the bottom of the chart. Consumers used excess cash to pay down debt during 2021 and 2022, and now they're back to utilizing debt like they did before COVID. I don't think credit card utilization is going to be a factor in future spending growth since the normalization is sort of behind us. I don't think it's a, a factor to drive above average growth going forward. But I do think that strong earnings, the employment market, and normal credit utilization should be enough uh, to keep consumer spending moving right along. So hopefully now you see our view, despite how you may feel or was reported in the media, um, the data suggests that the U.S. consumer is in a fine place. Uh, They may be a little bit worse than they were in the sugar high, um, at least on a a nominal basis, certainly not on a real basis. Um, But temporary highs, they always wear off. And as you can see, as a result of their strong position, consumers continue to spend. We're at the beginning of uh, the middle week in December here, so we have another, the November retail sales report will come out. But based on what we've seen so far, total retail sales are averaging 2.3% over the last three months versus a pre-COVID era average of 3.3%. Non-store retail sales averaging 7.9% versus a pre-COVID period of 9.2%. So you can see that sales are slowing down a little bit, but that's still pretty strong growth. Um, It's also notable that sales spiked significantly in 2021. Um, And so I think we could sit right here, not have a recession, simply be sluggish for a year or two as the give back for the sugar high that we had in in 2021. People bought stuff for their houses. They did a lot of renovation. A lot of things happened. Um, And so they just don't have to buy as much now. Early card data from B of A shows that Black Friday spending grew 2.3% year over year. Again, not gangbusters, but not bad. Core goods inflation at, at that time was zero. So that means that the growth in spending was actually real. It was good spending growth. It wasn't just higher prices. Uh, the National Retail Foundation is also expecting a holiday spending to grow this year, not decline. They're expecting it to grow 3 or 4%. Again, that's less than last year, but it's still really healthy. Uh, we like for the economy to grow 2 to 4%, and that's where we want to be. Passenger traffic through TSA was up 10% over Thanksgiving weekend from last year. Uh, That bodes well for the holiday season, not a disaster that some people were expecting. So not the gangbuster result uh, from a consumer spending perspective that we saw in 2021, but normal spending growth that doesn't create inflation is right in this this range. According to Equifax, consumers are planning to continue to use their credit cards for holiday spending. So despite the, the rise in revolving credit, they haven't decided to quit quite just yet. So betting against the U.S. consumer is probably not a good idea. Um, So I know some of you were just waiting to say, but employment is a lagging indicator and we see spending going down just a little bit. Um, We won't see the recession impact until it's too late, but we will see it hit spending, right? Um, In order for the economy to stall out significantly, we're going to need to see um, personal spending, consumer spending go down. And so far, so good. Um, I do think the goods sector is struggling more than services. Um, some folks have talked about sort of the the brown box recession or whatever. Um, People bought furniture, they bought physical stuff during the recession. They don't need to buy more of that now. But overall, um, consumers are just spending more money on services and, and service sector spending remains intact. So, so far, so good. So if you look at businesses, they also continue to spend. You can see in the chart on the top that total business expenditures, capital expenditures, those are the long-term investments that businesses are making. Um, those things are steady. 
Uh, they've fallen from their peak levels after the stimulus, like everything else, uh, but the decline has sort of stopped and, and leveled out. Business fixed investment made positive contributions in each of the last two quarters after being substantially negative in 2022. That's the opposite result you would expect, actually, with higher rates. You would have thought, hey, higher rates is going to slam the brakes on, on CapEx. Uh, but when we look at larger companies, those represented in the S&P 500, their interest expenses mostly termed out. Um, that means they've refinanced at longer term, uh, lower rates several years ago. Um, and so their interest expenses back to where it was pre-COVID. So it's not sort of unusually low, but it's also not that much higher. Um, as rates come down, um, that should slow down the increase in sort of interest expense gross growth over time. So the main impact of higher rates is likely not so much a slower capex and things that impact the real economy, but it's probably a reduction in share buybacks. They're already down almost 25% or $500 billion a year since the 2022 peak. Um, so that impact will weigh a little bit on the stock market um, as buybacks have been a pretty significant driver of returns over the past decade. Uh, but it's less to impact. It's less likely to impact the real economy, right? It's less likely to cause us to go into a recession if businesses just change the way that they're structuring their their capital. Um, so when you put all that together, um, the S&P 500 CapEx is growing 3% year over year, and that doesn't sound like much. But when you exclude some of the tech names and you look at what's happening in the real economy, you actually see that growth number move up to 10%, and that's really healthy. So when we think about real economy businesses um, that are making big investments in um, in machinery, plant equipment, those kinds of things, um, they're willing to spend and they're doing that at a pretty aggressive rate. Um, so it's hardly a sign that businesses are about to stop spending because we're going to have a recession starting in January. One of the major sources of spending, by the way, is on workforce automation. Um, so if you believe that the future world is going to be short on labor, then you should be investing in new technology to reduce your need for labor. That drives higher capex spending. So that's going to, I think, continue to be a theme that we'll see in the next year. And so I, I don't think business spending is about to fall off any, any sort of a proverbial cliff. We look at business activity. The Institute for Supply Management surveys businesses about economic activity throughout their supply chain. Their indices are benchmarked to 50, so a little bit unique. So reading above 50 means that uh, we have growing economic activity. Reading below 50 means we have contracting economic activity. So you can see uh, the services ISM data is running at 52, so a little bit of growth. Um, the manufacturing sector is at 46. That actually represents declining activity, and it's enough to have a recession. Um, and I think that's what we've been looking at in the economy and saying, hey, things are really bad, right? This manufacturing ISM is really low and it's really difficult for goods companies. But just like in the spending data, services remains really strong and they're holding the economy up and that can continue for a long time. Services does typically run closer to 56 on average. So I do think um, it's a watch item. It's not as strong as we'd like for it to be um, as we move into year. But um, so if that gets closer to 50, I think um, you know we, we may revisit um, our expectations for next year. But for now, I think services uh, in the business sector continue to be strong. Um, and so I expect sort of not a gangbusters year, but um, but an okay year from a business activity standpoint. So if we return back to that GDP components chart, we have a well-positioned consumer. Business spending is okay. It's not gangbusters, but it's okay. It's certainly not declining. Um, I think of the net imports exports measure, by the way, as flat. Sometimes it will contribute, other times it will detract. Um, but exports that detract from GDP aren't necessarily a bad thing because it's putting money in the pockets of American workers. And so I, I kind of ignore that activity um, when we think about this particular exercise. Government spending next year, I think, is most likely to be flat. Um, that was the original agreement that President Biden and McCarthy made uh, in May over the debt ceiling. It seems as much consternation as there is about government spending. Uh, we seem to be very unlikely um, and unwilling to get anything done. So I think um, the current agreement holds spending flat. Uh, there's no political losers. If we don't get anything done, we're going into an election year. So it makes it even harder to get really significant legislation passed. Um, so 
I don't think the fiscal side of things is likely to be a headwind or a tailwind, just sort of flattish heading into 2024. So that's how I sort of arrive at, at our expectation, which is a slow growth picture for the U.S. economy heading into next year. Could we have a recession? We're actually a lot closer to having a recession now than we were this time last year when everyone was absolutely sure that we were going to have a recession. Um, so if anything, you should you should be more concerned now than you were last year. It's funny because a lot of the strategists and sort of outlooks that have been coming out are exactly the reverse. Um, but I don't see any evidence that the U.S. consumer is slowing down and not slowing down enough to cause a recession. History shows that stopping the U.S. consumer requires some sort of really bad shock. People don't just decide to stop living their lives and, and spending. Um, so I think uh, if things just continue as they are now without some sort of unexpected shock, um, we could skate through and have one of those sort of uh, soft landings that we have, have seen very rarely through history. Uh, I do think where this gets more challenging is in the back half of the year. Um, the current Fed policy is really restrictive. The, the Fed's on the brakes for the economy, right? They've been creating this slowdown that we've been talking about. They've been removing the sugar from the system. And so if inflation doesn't fall and allow the Fed to ease, or if, even if inflation does fall and the Fed doesn't ease, eventually all that brake power that they're applying will stop the car and cause a recession. Um, I just don't think that it's it's imminently here. I think it's something for the back half of next year if if it comes at all. Um, so I, I think we're more likely to see things just continue continue to move forward with with really low low growth. Speaking of inflation, uh, we've talked about this chart a little bit before, but uh, we continue to see inflation moving lower towards the long-term target. Um, we expected core inflation to be at three and a half or lower uh, by year end, and we seem to have hit that target on core PCE. Inflation has been running closer to the Fed's two and a half percent target in more recent month over month reports. So if we just sort of hang out where we are now and we continue to lap months from 2023 and 2024, that's going to naturally reduce the rate of reported inflation over time. So I think we're going to get continued declining inflation over time. We should still see price declines in rents. Um, if you watch the last few Outlook videos, we've talked a lot about that. That's a third of core inflation. Um, and it's still much higher in the inflation statistics than what we're seeing actually happening in the real economy. So as more and more rental units turn over, we should see uh, those numbers come into core inflation and we should see the numbers continue to continue to fall. Um, I do think the ride's going to be bumpier from here. Um, you know, we came down really significantly over the last year from from the post-COVID inflation peaks. And, you know, we were going down a half of a percent or a percent every single month and more than that on, on a quarter over quarter basis. Getting that last percent to a percent and a half out um, is going to be more challenging. And so that's why I think, you know, the idea that we're going to be at uh, a 2% inflation number in, you know, February or March seems a little bit challenging to me. I think it's going to take longer. Um, and, you know, it, it'll take the bulk of next year for us to get there. But I do think that we can get back to target uh, by the end of next year. So now that we have a view on what's happening in the economy and what's happening in the real world, uh, we can kind of turn to markets and use our economic view uh, to inform how we should think about asset classes as long-term investors. So far this year, stocks have outperformed bonds. Gold, surprisingly to me, has outperformed bonds as well, although a lot of that performance came in the first few months of this year, and it's been relatively flat the last eight months or so. Most folks expected a recession to start this year, and of course, we didn't have a recession. The S&P 500 is up 20%. Uh, so staying invested, like we talked about, is really important, regardless of anybody's expectations. Uh, bonds have, have lagged this year, and that's really dragged on returns. Bonds are up 3% year-to-date, um, and, and that's been this, this significant detractor, I think, in most, in most portfolios. The Magnificent Seven, that's been a, a big topic of conversation all year, and, and rightfully so. The Magnificent Seven have been sort of the key return driver all year. For those of you that aren't as familiar with what that saying means, those are the seven large growth-oriented tech stocks in the S&P 500, so Apple, Google, NVIDIA, Microsoft, et cetera. Um, they're almost up double this year. 
but it's important to sort of zoom out again and think about where we've been. The Magnificent Seven are up only 8.7% since the start of 2022. So the highest growth companies in the United States are up basically average-ish market returns for the last two years. This year's above average rally was mostly just a reversal of last year's above average decline. So that's fairly paltry from a, from a return perspective um, when, we, when we think about what should be happening with those stocks over, over a couple of year period of time. This chart also shows the equal weighted index, uh, which I think is important because it gives you just a better feel for what the average company is experiencing um, when we take out the weights of the index. And you can see there's much more paltry price appreciation, only 7% so far this year. So you could argue that companies and their prices for the most part have been slogging through as the economy slows down. That would be appropriate given what we see you know, in, in all the economic activity that we talked about. From 1990 to 2019, so... 10, 20, almost 30 years, the S&P averaged a real annual return of 7.5%. Um, that's the actual return that we saw in the market minus the 2.5% inflation rate that happened over that period of time. Uh, since January 2021, the S&P has only produced average real returns of 2.55%. Total nominal returns have been closer to average, but inflation has averaged almost 6% over recent years. Higher inflation should have led to higher stock uh, prices in a normal environment. So I think the impact of higher rates and slowing down the economy has been working its way through the stock market over the last few years. It just may not has maybe it's not been as apparent to us as investors as as what's been really happening sort of under the cover. So we may not need a, a giant one-time decline to ring out the excess um, that may have occurred a little bit over the last couple of years. And if we had another year or two of subpar returns, then we definitely would have had a period of time where. Um, the S&P 500 sort of gave back, if you will, those excess gains that we saw coming out of COVID. I think you see the sluggish results that we've talked about reflected in, uh, in corporate earnings as well. Uh, you can see the slowdown in quarterly earnings from the beginning of 2021 and, and into this year. Uh, the economy has cooled, company results have slowed, and those are actually starting to pick back up again more recently. For full year 2023, uh, the consensus of sales side analysts, those are the folks that analyze stocks and decide what to buy and what to sell um, and put price targets on things. They're looking for earnings of 20 to, to Sorry, of 220 to $225 a share for the total S&P 500 this year. Uh, so even if you use the rosier $225 a share for the final 2023 S&P earnings, that's only an increase of 3% for the year. Inflation is likely going to end well over 4% this year. So companies have done okay, but nowhere near the traditional level of earnings growth that we would like to see. Uh, in the pre-COVID period from 2010 to, to 2019, earnings grew about 8% a year. And that makes sense. That was in line with long-term S&P 500 returns. Uh, this year, earnings are up 3%, and the market is closing on a total return of 21%. So uh, what that means is that most of the return in 2023 came from what we call multiple expansion, which means in layman's terms, we're just paying more for the same level of earnings that companies are generating. Expectations around the future growth of AI, particularly at, in the largest S&P 500 companies, rose significantly. Obviously, we had the back out of, of expectations for a recession, and so all of that uh, drove prices a lot higher, even though earnings ended the year relatively flat. So as you look into next year, I think you can make the case for slow but growing earnings. Uh, Q3 2023 earnings grew at 4.8%, but growth was actually 10.6% when we take out energy. Um, and, and energy company earnings are, are um, 
really impacted by oil prices. Oil prices are down a lot recently. They grew a lot last year. So if we back out the impact of just the oil price, the sort of what's going on in, in the average company, uh, earnings are growing pretty healthily. Um, and I expect that to continue into to Q4 of this year, maybe down a little bit, maybe not 10%, um, but still solid low single digit growth um, in Q4 and then headed into, headed into the next year. So when we look at the price that we're paying for those corporate earnings, we see a multiple that's slightly above average, almost 19 times the annual earnings for the whole index. Um, a lot of that comes from from the Magnificent Seven. Obviously, those companies are growing a lot, um, and so they they attract higher multiples. The average company in the S&P 500 index, the, the price to earnings ratio is closer to 14 times earnings, and that's actually below the long-term average because prices have just been kind of working along over the last couple of years for the average company. So I think that's indicative of the slowdown that we've seen in the economy recently. The Magnificent Seven, by the way, are expected to continue to grow their earnings next year. So the higher multiples maybe justify the idea that, well, they just can't keep doing it. Um, you know, the folks that look at those businesses really closely are expecting those the earnings to continue to grow. So, so I think there may be room for stock price appreciation. I, I don't see the multiple as, as a huge problem. If we put it all together, uh, if rates continue to come down in 2024, I think you can actually have a little bit of multiple expansion, uh, maybe not the same level of multiple expansion that we saw this year, uh, but lower rates are going to drive stock prices higher, all else equal. The fact set consensus total for S&P 500 earnings next year is $246. That's up from $225 uh, this year. Analysts tend to overestimate, tend to be a little bit over-optimistic, so we can go back and look at historical estimates and figure out what that estimation bias is, and that brings the projection down to 235 to 241. Um, so if we have a year with modestly lower interest rates um, and we have a, a year of modest economic growth, there's no reason to think the S&P 500 can't produce at least average returns of 7 to 9% next year. Not gangbusters, but not bad, and certainly enough to accomplish the goals for most long-term investors. We turn to bonds. We think about this as fixed income and diversification in portfolio. We've seen rates continue to rise in 2023. You can see the 10-year treasury now yielding more than 4% and the short-term two-year note yielding more than 4.5%. The rise in rates has caused flattish bond returns so far in 2023. However, when we look into the future, higher rates should actually cause investors to rethink their bond exposure. If rates remain high or they fall, bonds can provide a significant component of a total portfolio's return without all the risk that's associated with the stock market, certainly with a lot lower volatility. Uh, so for the last decade, bonds haven't really been an option um, because they've been, you know, rates have been so low that they just didn't contribute enough to returns to be compelling. But now with rates over 4%, I think they present a much more compelling addition to portfolios. And that's especially true if we look at corporate bonds. I mean, we get out of just the treasury market. Investment grade corporate bonds are currently yielding 5.7%. So that's big companies, strong balance sheets, not going out of business in a recession, those kinds of companies. Um, and then the yields get closer to 7 to 8% if you take on a little bit more credit risk. If we have a recession, defaults may rise, um, but default rates are pretty low today. Company balance sheets are in really good shape. They refinance. They have a lot of cash coming out of COVID. We talked about CapEx and the investment situation earlier. Um, so I, I just don't see this world where we have a sort of a massive default cycle um, that comes even if we have a small recession next year. Uh, earnings and cash flow are also still really strong. Again, should make default pretty minimal even if we have a recession next year. So we should be able to get pretty decent returns just on the bond yield alone. Um, as a thought exercise, if you think about a 60-40 portfolio where you got 60% in stocks and 40% in bonds, if you bought investment grade bonds in that 40% bucket today, that's almost 2.3% of your return that would be covered through the interest payments alone. That means your stock portfolio only needs to return 5% over the long term 
to produce that sort of target 8% return that we use a lot of times when we do planning. And so that's a pretty good risk trade-off. So I think it's worth thinking about fixed income side of your portfolio while rates are still historically pretty high. Uh, we don't do a lot of purely technical analysis, but I do think technicals help us understand investors' consensus views um, and positioning and things like that when we think about what the market sort of thinks is going to happen in the future. The households have been net sellers of stocks uh, throughout 2023. That seems likely to continue as rates remain above 4%. Pensions, other institutions, insurance companies, they also are going to look to take advantage of higher um, of higher bond returns and lock-in returns uh, where they can do that. So the attractiveness of bonds is part of why we think stock returns you know, can can be positive from here, but are, are going to be more limited as investors seek um, to earn returns in their portfolio with less risk, which is what we all want to do, right, is earn return um, and take as little risk as possible while we do it. Um, if we look around the world, European economies are mostly growing at less than 1%. Uh, Germany and France actually moved into negative territory in Q3. Um, like the U.S., inflation has come down from highs in 2022, but uh, they're still running above long-term targets for the ECB, just like we are in the United States. Inflation in the U.K. is even hotter. It's north of 4%. Uh, labor supply there is more constrained, partially because of demographics in the country, also partially because of Brexit and, and just the way that, that folks go to work in, in the U.K. And, and immigration and things like that. Because growth is already low in Europe, there's not as much room for Europe, I think, to remain out of a recession and continue to maintain the, the rates they need to maintain to reduce inflation. Tourism rebounded significantly this year. That was a big help. Um, So-called revenge travel in the third quarter. My parents went on a 20-day Mediterranean cruise themselves, right? That level of travel, I think, and the positive contribution is probably unsustainable in Europe. And so European companies, they're also more exposed to floating rate bank debt than, than the United States, which means higher interest rates start to have a bite um, as we move into next year. Uh, so so I, I think Europe overall is in a little bit more of a challenging place than the U.S. Consumer spending there also still growing. It's hard to see a significant recession in Europe because the consumer, again, like in the U.S., is in a pretty good place. Um, but because the economy is weaker starting out, I think um, it's probably going to have negative or slightly positive growth, more like stagnation in, in 2024. And that doesn't seem favorable to the situation that we have compared to the U.S. In Asia, uh, there's a lot of discussion this year about Japan and the end of financial repression. Uh, that has resulted in really low interest rates over the last couple of decades. After a strong first half, the Japanese stock market was mostly flat for the second half, and it's likely going to underperform the S&P 500 this year. Uh, Japan's economy may do slightly better long term than it has the last few decades. I 100% believe that. But the decision is really whether it's going to outperform the U.S., and I don't see that happening. On China, China underperformed the market's expectations for super strong growth following reopening this year. We expected the Chinese economy to open up for business in some respect this year, and we largely saw that. Um, they have some strong headwinds from the property crunch that's been in the news. You probably have read about that. I think that's going to drag uh, the economy there for some time. But I also think that the central bank there will reduce interest rates to support the economy. Remember, everything's centrally managed. There's no independent Fed or anything like that. It's just what can we do as a collective government effort to, to keep the economy strong. President Xi's visit to the U.S. didn't produce any really resounding confidence that the government's going to make China a more attractive place for U.S. businesses. I actually would have thought you would have used that opportunity to do that, um, and it didn't. The feedback from leaders at the meeting didn't didn't seem to be all that positive. So I would expect the combination of all those factors to produce sort of sluggish growth in China relative to history. Um, their growth rates continue to slow down. Um, I think that might not be a terrible thing. I think it keeps larger geopolitical issues at bay, invading uh, Taiwan, things like that. Um, when the economy is not doing so great, I think are more difficult for the Chinese Communist Party to sell to their to their 
constituents. So, um, so I think overall in China, probably growth again, but, um, but, but slower than what we've seen historically. Emerging markets had a decent year. They should continue to grow, perhaps at a faster pace going forward. Uh, emerging market central banks are ahead of the Fed. They've been sort of ahead of the U.S. and ahead of the developing world throughout this entire post-COVID process. They've already embarked on rate cuts. I expect those rate cuts to continue. Uh, throughout the economic cycle, they've resisted the temptation that emerging markets have uh, have given into in the last few cycles to sort of lever up, borrow a bunch of money, make a bunch of fiscal mistakes that ultimately end up blowing up. That's largely contributed to their ability to continue to grow despite weakness in the U.S. and Europe. I think we could see a little bit of decoupling. We don't necessarily have to have emerging markets you know, flatten out entirely if the U.S. catches a cold, so to speak. Uh, from a relative standpoint, though, uh, my preference continues to be U.S. markets, unless there's a compelling case that the U.S. is going to struggle vis-a-vis -vis the rest of the world. And I don't think we have that when we think about the, the rest of sort of the total international economic situation. Um, I'll close with a discussion on real estate. Home price appreciation has slowed down, but it's still positive. So anybody that's thinking about buying a home, I, I'm generally always encouraging folks to, to go ahead and buy a house because trying to wait until house prices sort of come down significantly, just that doesn't really happen um, in much of, of recorded history. Higher interest rates, they've significantly impacted those who are looking to buy homes for the first time. Um, but higher rates have also reduced the inventory that's on the market. And so we've got less inventory, we've got fewer transactions, um, but that's kept prices pretty strong. And for residential real estate, I think market fundamentals are still pretty pretty strong. There's a lot of folks that want to buy houses. Housing was underbuilt for a long time since the financial crisis in the early 2000s. Housing still hasn't caught up. I think higher interest rates are helping normalize appreciation. So housing should grow with inflation and other assets, three to 5% a year. Your house price shouldn't go up 20% every single year. That's not actually a healthy thing to have happen. And so uh, I think we're starting to, to see a more normal environment for house price appreciation. Um, when we think about investment real estate, the way that we think about investment real estate is based on capitalization rates. And capitalization rates should be north of 6% with interest rates higher than um, they were before the pandemic. So as a reminder, the cap rate or capitalization rate is essentially the operating income of a property after you pay all the expenses um, divided by its current market value. It's essentially the expected return if you owned the property and got all the earnings from it that, that you would receive. Cap rates have reset higher, but but many are between five and six percent. Uh, the peak to trough decline in valuation for REITs was was close to a third, thirty five percent, but then it rallied back recently to twenty four percent as the total sort of peak to trough decline for twenty twenty two. So I think waiting for cap rates to be north of six percent or higher presents more compelling investment opportunities uh, when we think about uh, when we think about real estate. I don't think there's an imminent real estate collapse. Um, more like a, a term midterm malaise as properties refinance at higher rates. We see some shakeout in office um, and values adjust accordingly. Um, I think rents will go higher to compensate um, for, for higher rates that, uh, that multifamily property owners are paying. Privately owned real estate is a different matter. I think if you can find specific properties that are in need of new financing, you might be able to get a cap rate that's much higher than 6%. And so I think there are good values on the market um, if you're looking at buying individual properties. Um, so I would look for private real estate opportunities in your community before buying sort of publicly traded REITs, um, sort of with what we see today in the market. So how do we sum it all up? Um, I don't want to be overly optimistic, um, but I feel like there's a lot of general pessimism in the world about the economy, and I'm not sure the data supports that view. So hopefully the walkthrough that we've done this year um, explains why we don't expect the economy to fall off a cliff in January, why we think it's sort of a muddle through kind of year, why we think most importantly investors should stick with their plan um, and stay in the market. 
Um, it's important, I think, um, that you you get to an asset allocation that you can live with, that you stick with it, um, and you don't try to don't try to time the the, the market. And and when we think about uh, interest rates in the bond market, the same thing applies, right? So let's not try to time the interest rate market either. I think it's important to start investing now at higher rates and over time. Uh, those investments will look really good when we look back sort of five years from now. Um, and, and I think largely we talked about this a little bit, but I think it's worth reconsidering your allocation to bonds. Rates are higher. Higher rates should allow you to earn the returns you need to earn with lower risk. And so I think it's important that you think about your bond allocation if that's not something that you've done uh, this year. Um, so if you're looking for help with how to do that, we'd be happy to have a conversation with you about how you're achieving your goals. We covered markets and investments in, at length um, in this uh, in this podcast episode, in this video, but our practice looks at uh, our client's entire financial situation. We help minimize taxes, plan for retirement, other goals, um, helping empower families uh, through wealth transfer strategies, all that stuff. Um, we take a holistic view when we think about working with our clients, and it's, it's much more than just sort of markets and investing. Uh, so if you're not sure how to proceed, it's super easy to schedule a call with us. Um, you can get real professional guidance. Uh, there's a link in the video notes to do that. There's no sales pitch coming. We promise. Um, I don't even let you sign up to be a client after we meet the first time. If you ask, um, that would be weird. We just met um, in an intro call. We just ask questions. We want to get to know you, get to know your situation, um, figure out how we can help. And then if it seems like there's an opportunity, then we'll get back together and, and talk more about what that would look like. So, so reach out if you'd like to continue the conversation and get help in your specific situation. Uh, and with that, I wish you a Merry Christmas and a happy holidays. Um, and we'll talk to you in 2024. Commentary provided is for general audiences and educational purposes only. It should not be construed as investment, tax, or legal advice for your specific situation. That's why you should talk to a professional. Hello. Past performance of market results is no assurance of future performance. All the information on the podcast has been obtained from sources we deem reliable as of the date of this recording, but it's not guaranteed.